welcome to this new episode of the JCMC interview series. It's really, really a, a pleasure. Today we have a big host because uh, our host today is Professor Ashish Kana, who is Associate Professor in Anesthesiology at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, North Carolina, USA. So welcome, Ashish. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Michelle, for uh, having me. And again, you know, um, as uh, someone who, uh, uh, you know, uh, publishes with the JCMC, thank you. This is a great opportunity and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I also introduce myself. I introduce myself every time. I'm Michele Introna. I'm an anesthesiologist and I work at Istituto Best of Milano. So... Today we are with uh, Ashish uh, talking about a nice study that came out in the, the JCMC a couple of weeks ago uh, that is called Assessment of Skin Pigmentation Related Bias in Pulse Oximetry Readings Among Adults, uh, which, uh, which is a really interesting study. So I would like uh, Ashish to introduce a little bit what the study is about and what are the main uh, the main findings of the study. Yeah, Michael, um, you know, the, the whole issue with pulse oximeters overestimating oxygen saturation in individuals with darker skin pigmentation has been in the news for the last uh, about three or four years. Uh, we all know the the publication in the New England Journal in 2020 that that highlighted this issue. Um, so we uh, thought that we were going to investigate the performance of um, the True Signal SpO2 sensors uh, that are manufactured by G Healthcare uh, in um, using pool data from adults with uh, different types of skin pigmentation. So essentially, this was a retrospective study. And like I said, it used pooled assessments of paired SpO2 and SaO2 measurements. And it looked at uh, bias, it looked at accuracy, and it looked at precision. And we, uh, for the purposes of the study, divided uh, the oxygenation into three bands. That was between 70 to 80 percent, 80 to 90 percent, and more than 90 percent, and which makes sense also clinically, as we know, you know, uh, as we, you know, we sort of have a normal oxygen saturation, more than 90 percent, less than 90 percent. We make a lot of decisions around those points. Um, so that was um, the the background rationale. In, in terms of the overall results, we examined about 11,000 data points um, across these nine studies. And overall, these were about um, 131 adults in all. And uh, we did use, instead of self-reported ethnicity, we looked at pigmentation using something called the Fitzpatrick scale that classified skin pigmentation from grade one to grade five in, in sort of an increasing order of skin pigmentation. We found that uh, about 75% of our uh, total uh, population was in the light pigment group, and then another 25% was in the dark pigment group. 
The overall results, um, in short, um, demonstrated that uh, the bias itself was uh, fairly minimum, was about 0.14% overall, and then was about 1% across the various skin pigmentation bands. Importantly, it was a lower oxygen saturation band where there was a significant difference in the bias between the light and dark pigment groups. So that was uh, statistically significant. Um, so remember the lower oxygen saturation band was um, oxygen saturation of 70 to 80%. And then the uh, overall accuracy was 1.64 for the light and 1.71 for the dark skin pigmentation group. Um, and, you know, um, <clears throat> the FDA, and regulatory agencies usually allow us uh, about less than three or less than 4% um, for our um, accuracy. And this is so variously within the device specifications given by regulatory agencies. So the, the overall, uh, what, what I could conclude with this was uh, at least with this particular group of uh, oxygen saturation sensors, the precision, accuracy, and bias was all within reasonable limits. So overall low bias, um, high accuracy, and high precision. Now, having said all of that, uh, there was some concern that as the oxygen saturation least reached lower levels, there was a difference in, in bias and statistically significant difference. So uh, we do feel that there needs to be more work and uh, there needs to be specifically prospective studies designed to examine this issue in, in greater detail. But overall, uh, I mean, can we uh, conclude that these data are quite reassuring after some years of uh, discussion about this, this specific point, especially, I guess, uh, during the COVID, this was a, a, main, uh, a main issue for all of us involved in critical care of COVID patients. Yeah, so interesting uh, observation. Yes, I, I will say that seeing this data, I'm reassured that even if there is a difference, that difference is at lower oxygen um, saturation or lower SpO2 values. Uh, we all know that in general, when patients have really low SpO2, that's below 80%. Then you know the reliability of pulse oximeters in general goes down, and there's other factors as well that might play into this. So in my world, yes, I take this data as very reassuring. Most decisions I make, and and maybe you make, and others make, are at an SpO2 of 90, 92, 93 percent, and at those values, uh, we did not see any occult hypoxemia, at least not in these uh, 130 odd patients that that we examined. Yeah, absolutely. This is the the range where you you make clinical decision. So it's yeah, I I I followed a little bit of the pathway of informations that during the COVID. Came, came out about the skin, skin pigmentation related bias on SpO2. And this, I found this study really interesting because it makes uh, some, some, some clear points uh, on, on some issues that were discussed uh, during the pandemic. So, but I'm, I, I, was, I was thinking, 
um, how was the journey between the, the 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 idea to the to the publication? So, if you can just describe in brief what was the the journey of the of this paper. So the journey, really, like I said earlier, you know, for a lot of us, we've been um, interested and curious. Uh, that publication in the New England Journal by the uh, group from the University of Michigan uh, in 2020 really set the stage. And as we know, they uh, it was a it was an impactful publication because <clears throat> they saw in two large cohorts that black patients had nearly three times the frequency of occult hypoxemia de that was not detected by pulse oximetry as compared to white patients. And uh, knowing that there was other issues raised around uh, racial disparities with management of COVID-19. Um, this became really, really significant. So I being an intensivist, I managed a lot of patients with COVID-19. Um, I was very, very curious about this. I know there's been um, a lot of work in this area. A lot of uh, device companies have since gone to the FDA as well, and, and the FDA has reached out to a lot of device companies. In fact, the FDA issued a safety communication in 2020, 2021, and then a report uh, in 2022 where they really asked for the device companies to um, you know, um, have a more robust system of uh, detection of inaccuracies around SpO2 oxygenation compared to SeO2. So um, I've, I've been very interested in this area. Um, this journey really scientifically began from all of that. And then more specifically for, for this particular uh, set of, uh, of investigations, um, we uh, worked with the group from uh, GE Healthcare and their engineers and you know their uh, their um, scientific advisors to sort of build this data set and to examine this data set closely, um, and that's how we evolved taking that question, knowing that these uh, nine um, studies had been published uh, in 131 individuals. We wanted to go back and look at pool data from these studies to really see if we could uh, look at SpO2 and SaO2 measurements and add some clarity. And most importantly, um, really inform our colleagues around um, you know what we thought was was clinically relevant um, levels of oxygenation that where we make decisions. And knowing that you know um, all of us use pulse oximeters, specifically use pulse oximeters not just for our patients in the hospital. Some people use pulse oximeters at home. I think the implications are were very uh, significant for doing something like this. I, I find really fascinating the word you used, uh, uh, curiosity. I was curious. So even behind big studies, big uh, big projects, uh, there is always some some curio curiosity that triggers the scientists, you know. So the, the, I find really interesting and really fascinating it. Yeah, no, I mean, curiosity, right? So, I mean, when... When this data first came out, I, I was a little uh, disturbed um, because I did not want the scientific community to feel that we were 
um, adding a layer of additional bias in the way we manage our patients. Um, I don't think that is the case. That's never been the case. And obviously, uh, we do understand that uh, a pulse oximeter, like any other device, has to be used in the right manner on the right patient and at the right time. Uh, but having said that, um, along with curiosity, you, you also feel that with something as common as a pulse oximeter that we use in the everywhere in the hospital and now everywhere at home, this is sort of our duty to the general population to inform them that, you know, people should not feel disturbed that their data is being wrongly interpreted because of their skin color, right? People should still feel that uh, they are safe. Uh, obviously, if we had uncovered something that would have been a large discrepancy, then then that that would have meant that we should have reported that immediately, and you know you know things should be done as next steps. Yeah, very 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 clear. Thanks. Um, just I was wondering, did you encounter any any challenges during the the process uh, of of any kind? Because we, here in this in this podcast. We are also trying to, to, to show, and I always ask the same question because I find interesting when, when scientists explain that it's, it's the process, it's not always straight, straightforward. So you, you can encounter some problems on, on your pathway from the, from the generation of the idea to the publication. So maybe you, you have some some challenges that you encounter that that can be of help for other researchers working on the same topics. I think the biggest challenge was the data was uh, fairly um, heterogeneous, right? These were nine studies conducted in different environments with different um, methodologies. Even though all studies used healthy volunteers, uh, we did know that you know the the data itself uh it, it was challenging to to piece the data together for the data to be homogeneous uh obviously we, we understand that with pooled data you lose some granularity so definitely there is some deficiencies in our data specifically around issues like you know um for example, the BMI of these patients, right? It's one issue. Not all of these nine studies reported BMI accurately, so we didn't have that that data appropriately. There was also some other missing data points. But, you know, you compromise on the other side by having lots and lots of data. Um, <clears throat> healthy volunteers, we know, are not like critically ill patients, right? And And even though you perform these experiments to induce hypoxia, um, th this is not the same as a patient, say, with COVID-19 who has not been properly treated or a patient with septic shock on high-dose vasopressors with ARDS, where there's poor peripheral perfusion or other uh, pathophysiological issues that are going to impair peripheral oxygenation, right? So even though we've tried to mimic low oxygen tensions, it's not the same as a critically ill patient in, in the ICU um, so, you know, the, these were inherent challenges when we analyzed the data. Um, obviously, uh, that's why these studies cannot be taken as replacements for uh, prospectively done experiments. 
um, and can also not be taken as replacements for um, critically ill patients, real-world patients who, who would have that possible discrepancy between SpO2 and, and SaO2. So, um, yeah, so, so in short, challenges, yes, but uh, I think we use some appropriate statistical methodology, um, at least with this data, to overcome some of the statistical challenges. Um, the the other issues will obviously remain that, you know, retrospective data is retrospective data cannot be compared to prospective uh, studies. Uh, thank you. Uh, the last question is, uh, you, you already said it, uh, it's that we need prospective studies, of course. Do you already have in mind uh, a study design that could be appropriate for this 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 kind of to to answer this kind of question. Yeah, so it's a it's a fascinating question. I think myself and others all over the world are thinking about better prospective study designs. Maybe uh, something that is um, highly pragmatic. Uh, maybe something that all that. Um, includes a um, patients across a spectrum of uh, perfusion pressures because we know perfusion pressures would affect this. Uh, maybe patients across a spectrum of uh, BMIs, um, maybe patients across a spectrum of critical illness as well because I do feel that underlying critical illness would affect some of these results. Um, how we do that, um, obviously, I think we, we need to form a larger global consortium of interested investigators who want to come together because I also feel like this needs to be a global study rather than just something done in the United States or in Asia or, or in Europe because the implications are truly across the world. And then finally, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel that Research is one aspect of this, but I feel that the regulatory agencies really need to pay attention to this because despite all of this, this is also an opportunity to um, improve the process measures around uh, regulation and approval of devices. Um, you know, and finally, you know, as, as we do all of that, uh, when we put these devices in clinical practice, this is also an important opportunity to educate our medical students, our trainees, and even our colleagues around what the problem is um, and, you know, what is the uh, implications and, and, um, and, and really how we should use the right oxygen uh, sensor with the right patient and at the right time. And and the reason I say that is that, yes, this data is very reassuring, but, but people should be educated around exactly what the problem is so that they don't feel that they are over anxious about this. They also don't, be, I should also feel that everyone should know exactly what the problem is. And then finally, you know, uh, I've also seen oxygen saturation sensors being used the wrong way, right? So we've seen, you know, something that needs to be used on the finger being used on the nose or something that's a, a, a clip for the nose being used on the finger or the other way around. People put it on the underside of the, of the lip or the ear. Um, we know that those kinds of mistakes, then obviously you, you're you're you are not measuring the right thing at all, right? So 
despite this research, I still believe there should be a lot of education and awareness in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with this point. I mean, to uh, TIVA, TCI, and, and neuromonitoring, processed EEG monitoring, and it's absolutely the same. It's not, not only the right device and the right monitor, it's the way people apply it and interpret it. So it's this. I absolutely agree with this, uh, this last sentence. So I think we are... Uh, we are done. Uh, our time is running out. But uh, I would like to really, really thank uh, Professor Kana to be with us and, and to share some time with us. So really, thank you once again, first of all, because you, you choose the JCMC for this uh, really nice submission. And, and second, to be here today in this podcast and, and video interview series. So thank you once again. Thank you, uh, uh, Mikhail, and uh, thank you to the editorial board of the JCMC. Uh, it's been a wonderful journey, and, and uh, I, we hope that this publication will create the necessary education and awareness around this issue and will help guide appropriate, um, you know, treatment and appropriate clinical decisions for our patients. Thank you uh, again for everything. Thank you. I also remember our listeners to subscribe our channels on, on YouTube, Spotify, and of course, uh, to share our contents on social media to increase uh, awareness on what we are doing at the JCMC. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you. Thank you.